Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. As always, we are calling on you to put your hands in your pockets and pay it forward to keep this independent, left-leaning, progressive podcast platform. Keep going. It's lights on, bills paid, mics on. And the only way it happens is if you click that link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the top of the podcast you're about to listen to. And it's not a one-way street. You get a ton of additional content, including this week alone, a brilliant new episode of Shrapnel where Gareth and Sam spoke to author of The Ghost Limb, Claire Mitchell, which is one of my favourite episodes they've done to date. There's also my own conversation with Aoife Moore and Emmett Kirwan live in the Sugar Club. And Giovanni Fontana rejoined us from Skopje in relation to the murder, the killing of Fatmata at the north macedonian border and the latest there all of those are available right now in one consolidated feed entirely plea free think about it as the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis and a little treat for yourself because you'll no longer have to listen to me beg thanks for listening thanks for liking sharing recommending us to your friends please keep doing that but if you can do join us i am shutting up now enjoy the podcast Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and delighted to be joined um, on the podcast today by the favourite panel of listeners, the favourite guests of our listeners. It is uh, Tom McDonald, Dr. Tom McDonald from the Nevin Economic Research Institute, uh, Michael Taft, economist with SIP2 and Dr. Trisha Keelty um, from St. Vincent de Paul. Tom, Mike, Trisha, it's great to have you back again. Thanks, Rory. Thanks, Rory. Um, So before we get into talk about the budget, what should be in it, the economy in general, society, Faradkar's wonderful restatement of his neoliberal principles in his welfare cheats and welfare crap again um we just want to give a shout out actually to a community enterprise called we make good ireland who made um make t-shirts which are really cool and uh, i have one which is housing is a human right and people might have seen it on social media and you can get them uh, order them from we make good ireland they also have a great one fuck the patriarchy as well uh lots of them there so you can check them out also, a shout out to, I was at yesterday, a protest on Leeson Street um, with Fingal Katu, the tenants union, supporting tenants who are facing eviction by a, a six billion euro vulture fund. Um, and there are many, many, as we've covered here in the podcast, thousands of people facing eviction. And interestingly, heard it on RT Radio yesterday, News Talk Today, people ringing in who are facing eviction um, and I haven't heard this before and seen it, and it, there is no doubt we've been covering it, that the 20,000 households who received an eviction notice over the last 12 months are in an absolutely horrific situation. So if you can, please support Katu, the Tenants Union, and the work that we're doing and call for the reinstatement of the, the eviction ban. Um, to go on to the budget then, we have the budget on October 10th. It is, in a way one of the most bizarre budgets we've ever seen. And and we've been covering budgets and campaigning on budgets for many years. I was probably thinking we're well back to 13 years at this point. 
um, when we did our plan B over austerity and, and what should be an alternative budget. And this one is bizarre, I think, in the sense that we've never had a surplus like this in the history of the state. And yet, rather than investing it, the government is going, mm, let's put it away for the rainy day fund. And we've unprecedented numbers of people in poverty. And it, it seems we are in this bizarre situation. Maybe go to you, Tricia, first, just in terms of what St. Vincent de Paul is seeing. I know we had you on recently, but just in terms of updating, what are you seeing in terms of the cost of living crisis and, and where people are at in that? Yeah, sure, uh, Rory. Um, obviously, it hasn't gone away. Um, people are still feeling the impact of it. So if you look at our calls so far this year, we're up at about 150,000 requests for help um, with the busiest part of the year still to come in terms of winter and, and Christmas time. Um, that's up on average 14% um, compared to the same time last year. So really people are still, you know, just not being able to afford the basics. And that's primarily being driven by food and energy. So if you look at energy calls alone, they're up 60% compared to the same time last year. So we've seen really a huge accumulation of debt because people have received a high energy bill. They still haven't paid that off. Then the next bill comes along and there's a huge accumulation. So not only are more people in debt on their energy bills, particularly gas bills, the level of debt is also significantly higher. But I would say on the positive side of things, we actually saw a drop off in calls for back to school help um, this year. And that's primarily down to the fact that government introduced free pr- primary school books. So it's 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 kind of a mixed picture. But for the most part, um, the energy issue hasn't gone away. And just general issues of, of poverty, you know, that's behind all that and that was there prior to this cost of living crisis um, are, is still persistent and affecting particularly lone parent households, people with disabilities, people caring for, for loved ones who have um, illness and people who are unemployed. So really it's, it's, it's this budget still really needs to deliver on a number of fronts. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is shocking when they introduce a measure that addresses a social issue. It actually works. <laughs> yeah, yes. with, the, with yes. the right policies, yeah, we can definitely make a difference. And quite instantly, you know, that was, yeah. we were we were surprised how quickly it took effect. Um, so, yeah, it's, that's why, you know, the next one is free school books at secondary school. Um, and hopefully it'll have the same impact. Yeah, yeah, great. And the other um, side of it, it's actually my mind's gone blank there for a second. I was going to say something. It's completely gone. So that, that's great. I'll move on to Tom. <laughs> Tom, in terms of the budget, if you were Minister for Finance, what would you be doing? Wow, that's a great question. Well, I, I suppose the first thing that I would do is I would ensure that all households that have fallen behind because of cost of living pressures over the last two years are immediately oh, I made even. Oh, I remember now what I was going to say. It's come back into my mind, sorry, that the debt, the accumulation of debt, which echoes what you're saying there, Tom, Tricia, in terms of that has happened. The, we did a podcast recently with Barrow Roundtree in relation to the rise in inequality that's happened over the last two years, and that it has been that collapse, reduction, fall in income amongst lower groups, and so therefore, and they don't have the reserves 
yeah. to carry over in terms of trying to deal with that so that building up of debt um which is important so yeah sorry tom you're saying you're going to yeah no uh, no cover. no just it actually relates to the, to that point essentially what budget 2023 did is it it leaned heavily into once off payments and i mean yeah better once off payment than no once off payment but it doesn't really help in terms of the way inflation works so You've got 7.8% price increase last year, 5.4% this year, three and a bit maybe next year. So it all adds like a mountain. It, it piles up. Whereas a once-off payment, once, once it's used, it's gone. So that's what they did on the welfare side. And then on the tax side, they gave income tax cuts, which are permanent benefits to better off households. So the first thing that I would do is I would immediately set up a benchmarking commission, which, which, which I, I would set to work. Uh, to, to produce its findings as early as possible. And, and in the meantime, I would ensure that all welfare payments went up by at least 25, 27 euros to bring them back into line uh, somewhat where they were two years ago uh, in terms of cost of living. Uh, so I, I think that would be a priority. So you just have to deal with the adequacy issue for everybody. It's you know fundamental to a, a civilized society. And we have deprivation rate of 17.7% and probably going to be a little bit higher next year. And, bar, and from Barra's re- research, you heard income inequality increased last year, yeah. um, as well as poverty and deprivation. But look, uh, that doesn't mean that you can't do all of the other things that you want to do as well. We, we, we do need to deal, deal, deal with infrastructure. You can't do that all in one year. That's, that's more about multi-annual planning and dealing with, dealing with it out over, over long term. We have to do all of that. We have the money from the corporation tax windfall that we can hive off into particular funds. Uh, to uh, to ensure longer term streams of investment into areas like housing, into 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 areas like uh, the climate transition and climate action. Uh, but l- longer term, we also have to look at the sustainability of the finances, and that means longer term, we just have to have an honest conversation about taxes, and we're not having that conversation yet. And unfortunately, we're going to have 1.1 billion of tax cuts this year. And again, I'm sure Barra mentioned the ESRI work about child poverty. You could take 40,000 children out of child poverty for 700 million. But actually, no, it's more important to give somebody on 120,000, 18 quid a week or whatever it works out at. Uh, so, look, I, I think the approach I would take is very different to what the government is doing. Um, I, I don't think it's particularly helpful, the strategy that they, they went with last year. And I don't think it will be this year either. Uh, we continue to fall behind in terms of social investment per pupil spending when it comes to education, whatever it might be. And just to note, while it is while it is good that school books were made free for, for, for primary school kids and hopefully for secondary school next year, it's worth noting that on the with the other hand, government took away things like IT supports for school, for schools. So you know it's um uh, it's important to look at the the detail of what happens on budget days and yeah. beyond. Absolutely. Um, Michael, then, in terms of what do, you, what do you think are the two or three key things the government should do in the budget? Well, yeah, I think there's three things. First off, uh, we've got to find a way of promoting uh, uh, in, in the next budget and over the medium to long term a substantial increase in investment in our public services, in social protection, uh, and an economic and social investment without driving the economy over an inflationary cliff. Uh, because we are at, you know, we're getting towards full capacity and governments can, uh, uh, make the mistake of pump priming, uh, without any consideration 
of the impact of that on uh, uh, economic growth. So that's why the second thing, we have to start a pathway, as uh, Tom uh, mentioned, uh, uh, towards higher taxes and social insurance. Listen, the dogs in the street know that we have to increase taxes and we have to increase social insurance if we want to confront uh, the challenges of climate uh, justice, uh, uh, automation and AI coming on, aging demographic, uh, never mind wanting to get better public services of the type that they have in other European countries, to get social protection for those in work and those out of work, uh, to lift people above a poverty floor. And the third thing is we've got to find a way to promote high road productive enterprises that can deliver on employment quality, investment, uh, climate justice. Because I think what you're going to see in this budget coming up is that they're going to throw so much money at business in the name of promoting business. But what they may well be doing, besides wasting a hell of a lot of money uh, through tax cuts, through grants, through social insurance cuts, uh, is actually reward a lot of businesses which are low road, who are suppressing wages, suppressing workers' rights, and are making no contribution in the fight against climate justice, uh, against climate change. So those are the three things. And uh, I, I'm not very optimistic about what this government will do, given the debate. As Tom said, it is absolutely incredible when everyone knows that we have to raise uh, uh, tax and social insurance that we're getting a debate about cutting over a billion euros in taxes. That is just incredible. And all the time, this budget debate seems really? to be obsessed with the government's going to increase uh, spending by 6%. Fiscal Council says, oh, no, it's 5%, or the whole thing will be destabilized. We have a lot of oxygen has been taken out of this debate and devoted to essentially a 1% uh, uh, difference which is actually, in the broad scheme of things, is absolutely meaningless. And just before I go to Tricia, in terms of what uh, Sid Vincent de Paul are recommending should be in the budget, the on the question, I'll come back around to it, the, the question of what are they actually increasing in, in terms of spending, because my analysis of the increase, for example, in capital expenditure, which is on the building of schools, housing, um, and even climate investment retrofitting is it's very very minor. It, it, the percentage in housing was an additional two hundred fifty million, for example, and that won't cover rising inflation. So, in terms of capital investment, we're really standing still or going backwards. In fact, uh, do you want me to come in, on Michael? That? Yes, sorry, yeah, Michael. Yeah. I was yeah, looking sorry. at you. You couldn't feel my intense stare, could you not? Well, no, I just see a face on the screen. Um, uh, uh, we we are already at we are at high levels of capital investment compared to where we were, though uh, a recent central bank uh, paper suggested that we're still below our peer group level when you factor in prices and all that. The real problem we have, and again, we have to have a you know an honest conversation. Uh, we can throw more money into the capital budget. The question is, do we have the capacity to deliver? And in this specific thing, this specifically refers to uh, labor resources. Now, it's, you know, I've, uh, I, I've mentioned this a couple of times to, to colleagues and they just face of dread came up. But uh, if you are full capacity in, say, a sector, let's say construction sector, what the state has to do is either through the tax system or through just 
simple administrative measures to say, okay, what we're going to do is temporarily suspend uh, uh, building activity in certain sectors, office blocks, hotels, or whatever, and we're going to redirect that labor uh, into building houses or retrofitting. Uh, that means you are not, you know, you're able to deliver an enhanced budget uh, for those activities uh, without stoking an inflationary demand. But of course, if you go down that road, you will have all the vested interests dragging everybody into court, and you will have commentators talking about an authoritarian state who's saying, we can't, you know, the priority, the social and economic priority is to build houses for people, is to retrofit their homes, uh, and therefore we can't afford to exactly. these and other what's interesting, what's interesting is we are seeing a decline in construction activity in the office sector, um, and the question will be, where will they go to? And the you can't rely on the, as we've talked over you know so long here the private construction industry to start building housing you know they could start building more apart hotels or more you know build to rent that nobody can afford and it does come back to the the need for a public construction company in my view a national building agency that would hire workers and that would create your permanent capacity and so you wouldn't be facing this situation um go go on michael yeah yeah, no, I'm saying yes. Though those those are the, the instruments can be used, but you have to take a decision. Uh, if you have uh, uh, if you have limited capacity, which we may have in terms of uh, say just in the construction sector, what we have to do is make very tough decisions uh, and prioritize uh, the activities that we believe uh, would provide the best social and economic benefit. And that means that means actually moving stuff away that while it may be profitable. Uh, uh, for some sectors, it does not fulfill our social and economic uh, need. And I would also argue, though, that there is issues around this claim that we're at uh, full capacity, because when you go into certain areas, particularly disadvantaged areas um, in this country, you will see employment, unemployment rates are much, much higher than the national average. And if you had apprentice schemes that were properly paid, you know, and bring people back into the workforce who previously might have, for example, been in construction and give proper jobs and conditions. Part of the reason we have such low capacity is because people don't want to work in construction because it's not secure. It's not stable. And I think there is an issue around that. There is also another potential, which is the modular fast build factory um, delivery of housing, which could add capacity. And as we talked about before, potentially buying up uh, factories internationally or taking that in. So that would add capacity. I'm going to go on to Tricia. Um, Tricia, in terms of St. Vincent de Paul, then, what are your kind of key things that you think should happen in the budget um, in, in, in the coming days? Yeah, I suppose if there's two things we can we can focus on, the first will be protecting incomes, which Tom and Michael have already talked about. So if you just look at the minimum essential standard of living data, even with the one-off measures, which Tom is right saying, once they're gone, they're gone, that goes on one bill and you're you're not protecting the the payment um, over the longer term. So you're seeing the value of that eroded um, and they were inadequate to start with. But if you take a single adult, um, the gap between their income and what they needed to live a dignified life in 2021 was 49 euro per week. So that's a shortfall every week. At the end of, um, uh, sorry, in 2023, the gap had risen to 67 
euro per week. And that is including taking account of the one-off measures. So that just shows you how the gap has grown, how people are then getting into debt yeah. um, and falling behind on the essentials and putting their own mental and physical health um, under strain. The gap is even bigger then for lone parents from um, 72 euro up to 93 euro being the gap, um, a weekly shortfall um, for, for parents as well. So that, really, that's heading towards 400 euro a month shortfall. Yeah. 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 Like it's, that's putting people under massive, massive pressure. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose that the big, the biggest driver there is, is energy and food. Um, so really we need to have a proper conversation around the future of our social protection system and what we benchmark it to. Because for us, we should have a floor that no one is expected to live below. No basic rate of social welfare should never fall below a level that people can't afford the essentials that you need for life. Um, but in this budget then to even just retain the level of inadequacy, if you want to put it that way, it would have to be €27.50 at a minimum. Um, and that's for core social welfare rates. The what, other what, piece, do you, what are you thinking is going to happen on that? What are you expecting? So I would expect, like they did last year, they will probably look at 10 to 15 euro um, okay. increase and then try and make up the inflationary gap with one-off measures that they may spread out over the year. Um, that's how the that's how it worked last year and I'd expect something similar again, which really just shows why we need some sort of benchmarking commission. We're really out of step with other European countries. It's kind of a bizarre situation where you have just pretty much guesswork about where the social welfare rates should go to um, and not linking it to any sort of metric, whether that's prices, wages or MESL data. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's the kind of key one for us. Um, and then also, you know, a cost of disability payment we'd like to see introduced. Um, so if, if you think about those shortfalls I spoke about, the gap is significantly wider if you have a disability because there's extra costs that go with having a disability. So really, we need an acknowledgement um, from government that um, people do face extra costs and that should be uh, recognised in the social welfare system. They did commission a cost of disability piece of research which showed that at a minimum that disability adds about €8,000 extra to your annual costs. So really, it's important that we move on that. So there, in terms of protecting incomes, they're kind of the key ones. And then also we need to look at the fuel allowance. At the moment, it's well below what's needed um, to meet rising energy costs. And it also doesn't reach everybody that would benefit from it. So we'd like to see that extended to people who receive the work and family payment. That's about 50,000 families, uh, low income, low paid work. Um, who currently don't qualify but would benefit hugely from from that payment if it was extended. And what do you have a view on the ESRI proposal around child poverty? Their their proposal for an additional uh, child benefit payment that would be means tested. Yeah, look, the the results are really impressive, and I if we could do that with a, a new second tier payment, it would be you know, obviously something that we'd support. We always just have a note of caution. When you do big shifts in social protection, there sometimes can be winners and losers in terms of who gains, because especially lone parent payments, where there are different levels of payments, pretending 
depending on what age your child is. So I think we just need to see extra feasibility impact assessment done in relation to that, but certainly looks uh, very promising as a potential policy option. But in the paper, they did look at increasing the qualified child payment, which is already the the core payment for children in social welfare households. So the government can do something quite um, substantial in relation to child poverty if they increase that payment in this budget by the level that it needs to be. Um, so 10 euro for children under 12 and 15 euro for children over 12. That's something that would help um, approximately 300,000 children who are living in the poorest households. So they could have a very immediate effect on, on poverty rates if they chose to do that. And do you have a view on the HAP limits and the HAP payments in terms of should they be increased? Yeah, it's what it's it's always this is always a a challenge because there's a concern that if you increase HAP limits it drives rents up higher, but the reality is like we we have calls from people who are paying a differential rent through their HAP, but they're maybe paying an extra 400 600 euro a month on top of that. Low income households, they're getting then uh, into issues with arrears, putting their tenancy at risk. So it's a huge problem. Um and it's only going to get worse unless there's something done about it. So we would see that there is a justification for increasing the HAP limits. Uh, that probably should be done in conjunction with rent control. And the other thing that we see is really important. We do not have enough emphasis on homeless prevention within our over, overall housing budget. We need to dramatically increase that so people have support if their tenancy is at risk at the local authority level. Um, and also the issue of rent arrears really needs to be addressed. We need a fund to help people because there's so many people out there and that debt is not captured anywhere in statistics. It's a very much a hidden problem. Um, and for no other reason than cost of living and issues of low income, people fall behind their rent and end up at risk yeah. of homelessness. It seems to be what, like, because people contact me as well around that specifically, that issue of rent arrears built up um, when they're in receipt of HAP. And it, it it reminds me or it strikes me that it's like part of the problem with, you know, Varadkar's and others, you know, narrative around, you know, welfare scroungers and, you know, some people are, you know, gaming the system is that this part of the reluctance to introduce something like that, which would actually keep people in their homes is the idea that, oh, well, you would just have people not paying their rent then. And it's just, like, it's just so wrong. as Because it's so obvious. And I know, like, there's yourself, there's Threshold, my understanding to Paul, for example. I think everyone is in agreement that there's a need for this rent arrears fund, and particularly for those who are in receipt of HAP. Yet there seems to be a real reluctance by government and government departments to introduce it on the the, the moral hazard argument. Yeah, and look, we would hear that quite a lot. But the reality is if you just look at the maths, like there's no there's no way someone on a social welfare payment can be making a, a HAP top up and be able to do that on an ongoing basis and not fall behind the rent. Now though they did when the eviction ban was lifted, they did bring in the change to HAP that if you fall behind on your differential rent, the payment is still guaranteed to the landlord. Usually it stopped, which caused more problems and, and rent arrears would accumulate. But if you look at, if someone falls behind on their rent in local authority housing, there's an arrangement made around payment plans. Now, it's a little bit more difficult with private landlords, but there is something that we you could do. And in terms of some rent relief, that would be state supported to get people and keep people in their homes. Yeah. Because 
whatever the rent arrears are, I can guarantee you it's significantly lower than having to put someone into emergency accommodation and the longer term cost of that, both to the state, but also to the individual and the trauma that it causes. Absolutely agree with you, but uh, it's not a cost if the emergency accommodation is full and they tell them there's nowhere to go. Um, and, yeah. you know, they just be, are forced into hidden homelessness. And I'm saying that sort of, you know, it, tongue in cheek, but I that's the truth. That's what's happening. That, you know, so many people are been forced into hidden homelessness because, um, but you're absolutely right in terms of that, the cost of emergency accommodation um, far, far outstrips any cost um, in terms of what would be needed for a rent arrears fund. Do you think we're likely to see that come in? It's been on on our agenda and others for a couple of years now and we haven't seemed to get traction on it, but the, the minister does seem to want to be looking more at homeless prevention measures and this has been a key recommendation across the sector, so we'll we'll remain hopeful. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, it's it's one definitely to push for. Tom, i got to come on to you just in terms of the the broader uh, economy and, and where we're going. And, and I started the podcast by saying this was a bizarre budget in terms of the huge budget surplus. Um, what, what's your analysis of where the economy is at from a societal perspective and inequality perspective and where we're going? Yeah, uh, okay. Well, normally we kind of look at these things to kind of a triple bottom line of, you know, the economy, the environment and sustainability, and of course, inequality. In terms of the labour market, first first of all, it's it's true that we are. You mentioned being close to capacity. We are close to capacity, but but actually, uh, male employment rates are still two point six percentage points below where they were before the great financial crash. The unemployment rate in the southeast, for example, the female participation rate is ten to twelve percent lower than that's male right. participation employment. That's right, and we still linked we still, to. Because we've the highest childcare costs and lack of childcare availability, which comes back to lack of investment and yeah, what are we yeah. going to see in childcare? Come on, ask Michael about that in a minute. Go on. Yeah, no, I, I, it's absolutely true. But but also just in terms of our unemployment rate, there are many countries in Europe that are doing better than better than us. Uh, parts of parts of certain regions within Ireland, such as the southeast, uh, there's an unemployment rate of six percent. Participation rates in the southeast, for example, are maybe are seven eight percentage points below what they are in Dublin. So there is there is capacity, but for example, a lot of those workers can't move to Dublin or to other or to other major urban areas because of housing costs and because of because of the problems associated with there. So, so there is there is an issue created there. It's it's not just about our inability to bring in people from from other countries or for people to come home. So there are there are constraints now building up because. Of the housing crisis, and of course that that leads to one to one of the social aspects. And there's a kind of a chicken and egg. We we want construction workers, but we also have to realise that we're going to have to pay them more, and we're going to have to inculcate the idea into people that construction is not a volatile job. And and I think you you touched on one of the solutions there, which is to create a guarantee for people that there will be construction related jobs. For a whole person's career, and that does mean the state having having a larger role in terms of climate action, retrofitting, etc., but also in terms of the housing crisis. In terms of the social side, deprivation rates went up by almost four percentage points between 2022 and 2023. Uh, uh, we did not achieve inclusive growth last year. Um, market inequality increased, uh, and again, fiscal policy was. Uh, stridently unhelpful in terms of in terms of what happened in the budget in the budget last year, benefiting people at the top over the longer term. 
Um, uh, and, we, and we have many social issues. Obviously, we have an underfunding, a chronic underfunding across many areas of public services. Uh, and obviously, in terms of climate action, we are amongst, we're, we're generally always in the bottom two or three countries in terms of greenhouse gas emissions per person. Obviously, we have a particular issue in the agriculture sector, but we don't do particularly well in, in other areas as well. So, we're at, we have a very strange budget, you're right. We have enormous surpluses, but those surpluses are purely because three or four US multinationals are essentially gaming the system and moving profits from tier one tax havens to tier two tax havens, principally Ireland, by, by locating IP assets here. So, and they're transitory. They've made those decisions. They can undo those decisions, which means it's extremely unwise to use that money for tax cuts or for increases in day-to-day spending. Put it into investment funds, put it into rainy day funds, put it into long-term long-term funds to generate a new, a new form of revenue. Don't spend it now. Also, we have as a, we have an economy which is close to capacity and arguably overheating. I think we can debate that. I'm not, I'm not convinced that, that we are overheating. But certainly it's not the case that we want a pro-cyclical budget. That's, but at the same time, we have to ensure adequacy for people at the lower ends of the income distribution. And that means we have to increase taxes on higher income households and we have to increase taxes on capital. So instead of having 1.1 billion of tax cuts, we should be doing the opposite. We should be increasing taxes on those cohorts by 1.1 billion and keep doing that for the next 10 years. Uh, that's what we should be doing. So it's it's purely ideological what's being done at the moment. It has nothing to do with economic theory. It has nothing to do with social policy. It is simply a distributional grab by particular sectors uh, for, for their interest groups. That's all it is. And if you were to strip away the those three or four corporations and their tax receipts and volatility, what would our uh, budgetary situation be? We'd be broadly in balance. Uh, we we might even be slightly in deficit, particularly when you look at a structural deficit. So if the economy is overheating, that means it's the budgetary position is made to look a little bit better because of that. I would say would broadly we'd be broadly in balance. Uh, so that suggests there isn't the space that people are talking about long term. It is actually okay. We're not in any fiscal danger. Let's let's put it that way. In terms of a six point four billion budget or a six percent increase in spending versus five percent increase, Michael's absolutely right on that. But it would be extremely foolish to start uh, to start eating into those transitory receipts uh, because we don't know we don't know if they're going to be there in three years' time. Back to just on to thanks for that, Tom. And, and you're absolutely right in terms of the ideology and, and you know what this is about. This is playing to a voter base who are very privileged and they want to try and you know that what they're doing, as you say, it's redistribution, uh, not trickle down, it's redistribution upwards in terms of the tax cuts. And you know, the, the, the debate around it is really quite something, particularly <laughs> the debate about um. And it seems likely now the bringing in of tax cuts for landlords, which is just utterly, utterly, you know, bizarre. And and I don't buy the argument that somehow linking it to tenant security um, is some is, is you know a justification when you could, should introduce tenant security regardless of what landlords get. Um, the the question, Michael, of um, the capacity in the economy and you know where we are at. A, in terms of like where we're going and where we're at, the do you see, you know, our economy continuing to grow in this sense, or if we're at capacity or close to it, 
what happens. And is there argument that it's not really that we're at capacity? It's that people are making, like, for example, around, you know, the, like, you know, the indicators that we're at, at capacity, what are they? Are they inflation? Well, we know part of inflation or a significant factor in inflation is profit, greed and gouging. It's not actually that there's, you know, capacity and materials have to cost more because there's a lack of them. It's actually simply the, those who are controlling it, the companies, etc., are charging what they can because they're taking opportunity of this inflationary situation. So it's therefore, it's not really that there's a lack of things that's leading to inflation. It's profit grabbing and profit gouging. Um, and secondly, then this wider question is, it's people, you know, for example, unemployment, the other indicator is, well, you know, we can't get people to take up jobs. Well, maybe the issue there is people aren't paid properly or people own proper contracts or they can't get housing or they're actually deciding I'm not going to work five days a week. I want a work life balance. So I'm making a different choice about how society and the economy should be. And that in actual fact that we're looking at this completely wrong and that what we're seeing is a, is in a way a bottom up demand for a restructuring of the economy and at the other hand from the top a profit grab. And actually we should be saying we need to do something very different. Absolutely. I mean, let's just talk about profits for a moment. I know it's kind of old school to talk about profits versus wages, you know, because uh, that, you know, all sorts of sense of class struggle and all that. But the fact is that over the long term and in recent years, and I'm talking about recent years since COVID years, during the COVID years, uh, uh, wages have not kept level with productivity. Profits have grabbed more and more uh, 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 of the share of business revenue. Uh, and that's been a long-term phenomenon. It is structural in the economy. But over the last two years, and this is fair due to the CSO and the central bank who have done this analysis, central bank found that 80% of domestically sourced inflation uh, uh, last year was due to profits. Not wages, but profits. 80%. And what uh, the CSO in, you know, really good data coming out now on profits uh, is that um, over between 2020 and 2022, so it doesn't include this year, just those two years, profits in domestic companies, excluding multinationals and all their kind of, you know, uh, uh, accounting wizardry to shift profits around, just looking at domestic companies, uh, their profits increased by 50%. If you want to have a sense of, uh, why your goods uh, at the supermarket are rising faster than what you think they should be. Well, that's because in those two years, uh, retail profits went up by 30%. So we're seeing this grab. And just to give, I think you were going to start talking about childcare. Well, we saw this employer's quote unquote strike last week, Tuesday, Wednesday, yeah. and Thursday, big demonstration in front of the, uh, in front of the, um, uh, uh, dog. And, of course, the argument of the Federation of Early Child Care Providers is that the government's not giving them enough money. They don't have enough money to make this service work. Uh, now, that I think that ultimately is true. I mean, we invest very little in child care. Yeah. But the problem is the delivery model because uh, SIPTU did a survey of a select number of uh, small and medium-sized uh, child care providers, and their profits had trebled. Over 2020, 21 and 2020 and 2021, they had actually trebled. One child care provider sent a letter home to, uh, 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 to the parents saying, you know, that they had to go on strike for these three days, 
closed their services in the protest against lack of government funding. But in the previous two years, they had handed over half a million euros in dividends uh, to their ultimate owner, which was owned by a family. So what we've seen here, you, you, you know, I think you're right about the profit grab. Uh, you know, people have focused on energy uh, and uh, uh, obviously the housing issues as well. But generally speaking, throughout the economy, we've had this considerable profit grab. And yet, when workers, you know, try to take advantage of the full employment situation to, you know, to push up their wages, uh, or they move from one place to the next within two or three weeks' time because they're getting a better wage, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to game the system for as long as they can do it by pushing up wages. They're the ones that get under attack. Uh, by the uh, employers' federations. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. You're seeing resistance at the bottom where they can, but we are seeing profit grab uh, at the top. The government's not acknowledging this, and they are. we're on the eve of a budget, which is going to be a big giveaway to corporate welfare. But at the same time, what they're going to do for households is going to be, as, as Tricia uh, uh, you know, pointed out, uh, is going to be so so much below uh, what is needed to bring people up to the poverty line. So yeah. yes, you have those you have those conflicting uh, conflicting demands. Great. Guess who will win? Well, yeah, well that that's the question, isn't it? And I'm going to come on two last questions that, uh, and and I know our listeners will really appreciate the analysis. Um, you know, you've been providing. Uh, one, one, two questions. The first one is, in every budget, there's always something that just emerges that people just go, oh my God, did the government actually do that? Um, I, I think it might be that the tax break for landlords in this budget, if you were to look at your crystal balls, what do you think will be the one people will go, oh my God, what did they do that for? Or why did they do that? Or are they just, you know, what's, the, what's going to be the one that you think will make a bit of noise and people will get head up over? Anyone? Well, I'll, I'll start. Come on. I, I, I think there's a big danger they're going to cut inheritance tax. Oh, jeez. Yes, that's right. It's a Jesus <laughs> moment. There's Tom's sigh, the collective sigh from all of us. Uh, well, Finnegale is going to get some sort of something because I don't think they're going to get as much as they wanted on the increase of the standard rate tax ban because there was a real pushback against that. So look out for a cut in inheritance tax. It may well, not necessarily be the rates, but it'll be an increase in the thresholds. Uh, uh, and that will effectively mean reducing uh, tax on uh, people who get an inheritance. Uh, I, I'd watch out for that one. I may be wrong. I hope to God I'm wrong. But, you know. Yeah. Well, just, well, just to say, uh, of course, it was the one thing Leo Varadkar cared about. You know, when the tax commission, came, a tax and welfare commission, came out with its 116 recommendations, that was that Sinn Fein fronted lobby, wasn't it? That's the one. <laughs> he, um, he, the one, the one thing well, he cared about. Sinn Fein logo on it. You know? <laughs> the, the, oh, the harp. The, the one, the one thing he, cared, the one thing he cared about was inheritance tax. That's the one that he had a big hissy fit about, and. You know, I, I don't think that even impressed people in his own in his in his own party. To be fair, and and to be, and the committee on budgetary oversight responded to the commission on tax and welfare on Wednesday, and of course this includes Fine Gael members. And what did it say? It said that inheritance tax was too generous and that the threshold should be moved down. So the thresholds should be reduced and inheritance tax should be increased. Is what That's they said. So that and that includes Fine Gael members. So I think. 
hopefully that is enough ballast now to protect us against cuts in the inheritance tax uh, on the 10th. It would be a shocking move because intergenerational wealth inequality is likely to increase dramatically over the next decade or so. If you're if you're a, a lucky child, you will inherit a house often for free. But if you don't, you're going to be further and further behind. We're going to have more pensioners who are still paying off mortgages uh, in their pension years and, and that intergenerational inequality is going to become more and more severe. So what, so the first thing you do is you basically make the inheritance tax a proper tax, bring it down to the level of the median average average industrial wage or something like that. I don't see any reason why it should be any, any higher than that. Get rid of all the tax reliefs uh, to do with inheritance tax and make it a genuine tax, which is bringing in receipts Ta- every, like every li- single year. Tax are like, like labour income. Yeah, tax like labour income at the okay, marginal Okay, okay, Michael's thrown in a good one there, inheritance tax. What's your one, Tom? Oh, well, I'm, I'm still reeling from the inheritance tax bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> bombshell. What, what a nightmare. But, but uh, <laughs> my, my absolute worst nightmare. But, but, but maybe they'll cut capital gains tax or something like that because oh, yeah. to, to make business work, you know, because okay. clearly it need, we need more corporate welfare. Uh, but, 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 but frankly, the income tax cuts by themselves, I'm concerned that they'll actually go more than 1.1 billion. And because they all want their own little bits, USC versus income tax, they'll actually push it up to about 1.5 billion. That would be, that, so, that'd be a real worry. Okay. Okay. Great. Patricia, Patricia. Well, to answer the question a little bit differently, I suppose for us, if the budget doesn't deliver for children in poverty, given that it's been given such prominence both within the Taoiseach's office and kind of in terms of this budget and framing if it doesn't deliver for children in poverty I think you know it's 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 really going to be a lit, 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 litmus test for this for this new initiative um, and that means targeted income supports investment and in services and um, payments for children living in direct provision is a key one as well um, uh, free school books, free education, genuinely free education, and investment in early years education and um, care. They're they're the kind of key things, um, as well as um, what I spoke about earlier around homeless prevention. Obviously, the the homeless figures are out again today, and uh, child homelessness is at uh, the record level again. So yeah. we can't we can't have another budget where children are left behind. Um, and for us, um, that would be shocking if it doesn't deliver. Okay. Yeah, if, I could just, right. if, I could just, if I could just briefly pick up on something that Trisha said at the very beginning, I think it's so Go important. Go for it, Michael, quickly. Uh, when you said that um, the uh, uh, there was a reduction in, uh, you know, people calling to uh, Vincent de Paul uh, uh, arising out of the um, reduction in education costs. Uh, you know the free school book scheme. There is, there it lies. That's one one small example. Lies uh, uh, a pathway to actually reducing living costs is by going through public services and especially education, because there is nothing dumber than actually put taxes on learning, which is actually what that is. You know, they're forcing households to pay to send their children, which is a social, economic, and personal good. So it's not just free school books, it's free school meals, it's the abolition of voluntary contributions through actually properly funding uh, education. That would actually be a substantial boon to households with children, who I suspect, and maybe Trisha, you might correct me, but I suspect households with children are the ones really taking it in the neck over 
the cost of living crisis. There, we can give relief to those at, at, at the margins. We can reduce living costs all by making uh, all by making uh, access to public services free or affordable. And we can help, and, and we can pay for some of those educational supports by removing funding from private schools. It, it all works for me, you know. <laughs> Thank you so much to uh, my guests today, Michael Taft, economist with SIP2, Dr. Tom McDonnell, um, economist with Neary, and Dr. Tricia Keelty, uh, head of social justice with the uh, St. Vincent de Paul. And as always, please guess we are an independent podcast produced by Tony Groves, Tortoiseshack Media. Please become a patron, support us. You get the podcast first into your email box. Help us keep this podcast on the road share it around let people know you're listening um and yeah thank you so much for listening thank you much so much for your comments and for sending them in and we will talk to you all very 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 soon <laughs>